Hey, welcome to another podcast. Today I'm talking to Kamal Fernandez. Kamal's bio is almost too long for me to include here. He's done so much stuff. He's been on so many different TV shows, but most recently you might have seen him on TV on the Dog Academy. He's also been a presenter at Clicker Expo, the Fenzy Dog Sports Academy, and he's really well known for being a bit of a badass in competition obedience training to a very high level and also coaching a lot of people for competition obedience and of course just reactivity you know and uh, and uh, generally having a, a well-behaved dog so really looking forward to this podcast but before we get started just a shout out to our sponsor which is n2n canine mills they make treadmills for dogs essentially carpet mills and slap mills really good way of having a very fit dog really condition starting to condition the fitness of our dogs especially in this country where the weather can be awful and as a podcast listener you can use the code nb10 when you go to checkout you can find them on instagram or on their website it's n2n canine mills that's the letter n the number two the letter n again and then canine like the word mills.com or just the same on instagram all right super let's get started Hey, Kamal, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's been seven years in the making, so we got there in the end. <laughs> yeah, definitely. There's been a few guests like that. So to give the backstory, we tried to do this in 2016, and I think we had a bad connection, and then we just never really got around to it again. Yeah, I, yeah, definitely, yeah. I get the impression you're you're a very busy person, especially with the TV stuff. I know, obviously, you've, you've done the most recent one, the Dog Academy, but actually, when I was... I Before I record with anyone i try to kind of have a little look at things and do a little bit of research and you've actually done a lot of tv work haven't you yeah i've done quite a bit but now you sort of look at it really i mean um obviously the latest project the dog academy uh was it was the first series this year um and then we've got another series which we've just not long finished filming um and then i did uh dogs might fly um which was oh god when was that 20 oh, before my daughter was born so 20 2015, 2016. Um, so that was where we took 12 rescue dogs and rehabbed them and then taught them to fly a plane because that's what you do with dogs, isn't it, really? And then before that, I've done um, television work with my own dogs, providing them for film work and television. Uh, I've been on The One Show. I was on Dogs... Uh, is it Dogs Behaving Badly? But quite a few things over the years, really. And I used to um, have... A friend of mine, she had a television and media company that supplied animals, so I used to work for her. And then... Unfortunately, she passed away um, a while back and I took the company over for a period of time and we did that for a little bit. So I've always sort of been, in, uh, you know, on the peripheries. It's just like everything. As you said, I'm I'm super I'm very, very lucky and very blessed to be busy. And I don't ever take that for granted as, you know, as a, a person in this industry. So it's always about juggling, Nick, to be honest with you, you know, juggling, you know, work, family what I like to do for sports as well, because I obviously compete with my dogs. So there's a lot of things going on. So it's always conflicting calendars, really. Did you pursue the television stuff a lot? I mean, I know a lot of those shows came from your connection to Victoria Stillwell, right? Yeah. Well, originally, so the, I went on, a, I did a program called, oh God, I can't remember what it was bloody called. Um, well, they took celebrities and um, taught them to train dogs. I think Steve Mann won that. Was that, that the underdog one? The underdog, no, that was it, the underdog, the underdog show. That's right. Oh God. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so I did that, but um, that was done via my friend Kay. Um, dogs might fly. I think I found organically. I don't know how they got my details, 
but Victoria was on that show and I hadn't met Victoria at that point. Um, and we obviously with um, Dogs Might Fly, we were filming for, it was about a year of filming. I mean, I was on, I was involved for at least six, seven months and then they had another entity to it as well. So it was probably like a, a year long production. And um, obviously I got to know Victoria relatively well there. And then um, out of the blue, um, a f- uh, Five Mile Films contacted me about this recent project. And it, if I'm honest, initially when they emailed me and left the voicemail, I just thought, because I've been approached over the years for various projects and either they haven't been quite um, something that I want to be involved with or they just haven't connected with me. You know, like I, I, like that isn't my thing that I, I um, you know, salacious television isn't my thing really. You know, if it's got a purpose, if it's going to send a message and help people, I'm absolutely down. But, you know, to be honest, having dogs just do general tricks isn't my thing. So, um um, not in that sense anyway, you know, so anyway, I, they approached me, they emailed me and I deleted the email. I just went, oh, that's a load of nonsense. I thought it was just a random thing. And then they voice messaged me and they said, oh, we've got your details via Victoria still. Oh no, they didn't say no, they did not via Victoria. They said she was involved in the project. So I was like, oh, this must be a legitimate inquiry. And then it just went from there really. Um, and I obviously went and auditioned like everybody did. Um, and, um, they obviously felt that I had something to bring to the table. And my parting words in the audition was, you know, because I really believed in what the the show was trying to do. Um, I said, you know, look, if you don't pick me, I'm very okay with it. I've got my day job. Um, but I wish you all the best because I think it could be a really, really impactful show. Um, so, yeah, and as I said, we're on our second series. So who knows what the future holds? I mean, whether, you know, television is very, um, you know, up and down, you know, hence why, you know, for me personally, I've always had other things on the go. Um, and I think that's a really good way for anybody in this industry to survive and have a career, really. You've got to have diversity. If you if you um, put all your eggs in one basket, you can um, limit your options. Um, you know, so, so yeah, no, I've been very, I've been very lucky, Nick, over the years, to be honest. I've done some really, really cool stuff. So I'm very lucky. I'm very, I'm very fortunate. Yeah, I mean, that was my experience before. For sure, I feel like you have to make hay while the sun shines because, you know, like when we were doing the pack, everyone was like, everyone was talking about season two, like it was a definite, yeah. you know, like it was definitely going to happen and then yeah. it didn't. Yeah. And I've, and from speaking to a lot of people that have done television, I think these kind of experiences are quite universal. Like everyone always thinks there's going to be another series yeah. or like the amount of shows that get pitched and like, you know, you can do months and months of work and then it just doesn't go anywhere, Absolutely. you know? So it's, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a bit of a crazy world TV. Yeah, but it's, it's a crazy world. I think, you know, the ironic thing was I was actually planning on doing a very similar online project to the Dog Academy. So I'd started thinking about uh, doing a self-produced, um, as I said, product uh, uh, content for YouTube, where I was basically going to be showing the human and uh, really exploring the human and dog relationship and how that affects behavior and how that affects, you know, specifically reactivity and really analyzing it. And I'd sort of started to put sort of um, uh, wheels in motion to make that happen. It was just so ironic that the um, Five Mile Films come to me and said, well, I basically did the the, uh, uh, the same exact, well, more or less the same principle um, on a, obviously a much more grand scale. So I was like, yeah, and I mean, the, the people that we, the, the television company or the production company, they were amazing. They are absolutely amazing. Um, and obviously the people that we work with, um, Victoria, um, in the first series, it was Victoria, Adam, um Danes uh Joe Payne Nancy Creedon and um myself that were um is my missing anybody yeah no, no, that's it yeah the trainers um 
And so, yeah, it was it was just not because I didn't know most of them. So, you know, I, I sort of exist in my own little you know ecosystem, so to speak. So it's nice to work with other people to get their take on dog training, to have conversations about training. So, no, it was I mean, I, it was brilliant. You know, I was very, very, as I said, very lucky. But like you say, you know, I, I actually was the opposite. I assumed that we wouldn't get another series. I thought, oh, this would be the one thing that we do. And then that'll be it. Sayonara, good night. And I'll be the same. And that'll be it. Really, thank you very much. But then when they went, oh, no, we're commissioned for another series. I was like, oh, well, that bodes well. So who knows, really? But yeah. yeah, well, that probably speaks to your experience, you know, because yeah, yeah, yeah. when you're less experienced and I don't know, people get caught up in the hype. Absolutely. And I think that's a really, really important thing. Like, I suppose because I have been doing it a little while, like you say, you sometimes when you're even when you're providing animals for television and media, you'll get a call like Friday night. Could you have, you know, a one eyed beagle without a hop on one leg or bounce a ball in its nose, um, you know, by 6 a.m. tomorrow? And you run around and make it happen. And then they'll go, oh, no, sorry, we didn't actually need that. We're not shooting till or no, we're not. That project's not going to come off, whatever. So you take it all with a pinch of salt. And I'd say that's quite a good, healthy way of operating in this world, really, because certainly with you know, social media, with um, um, media in general, you can very quickly get wrapped up into it and you can believe your own hype. Um, and I think what, you know, certainly I feel like I, I I try to keep my feet on the ground really with these things. Yeah. One thing I didn't know about you, Kamal, until I started having a look for this podcast is I didn't realise that you you were a police officer at one one time. Yeah, for 11 years, not a dog handler, but I was a police officer for 11 years in London. Um, and I did that as an interim career between um, what I do now. And I used to, what I used before I was a police officer, I worked in um, boarding kennels and did, you know, relative, most jobs that most people do, like, you know, working in a shop and all that sort of jazz. And then um, I um, worked in kennels for a little while. Uh, boarding kennels and did residential training and worked with a lot of RSPCA cases and that because it was a kennel that had a contract with the RSPCA and also uh, seized dogs on the DDA, which is very topical at the moment. Um, and seeing firsthand what, a, to be blunt, what a cock up that whole thing was really, you know. And then, as I said, I um, wanted to become a, I w- thought I wanted to become a police officer. And um I joined and did, as I said, 11 years, and I really enjoyed it. I always said when I started, I would do at least 10 years, um, and then I would reassess if that's what I wanted to make my career. And, um, you know, dogs has always been my passion, and dog training has always been my passion. I've been doing this since I was a kid. And I thought, you know what, you know, which is what I hope for my daughter, is find the thing that you love, and, and, and you know, that, what does they say about um, find a job you love, you never work a day in your life, and I think that's the greatest gift that I could give myself, really. So, in 2012, I um, jumped ship, and thankfully, I haven't looked back, really. When you say the Dangerous Dogs Act thing was like a cock-up, like what, what specifically, like, uh, you know, anything? So, uh, obviously, it's really, really topical at the moment, but the, the DDA was very much a um yeah i would say it's a knee-jerk reaction to the problem that was around at the time so i mean um obviously early 90s um it was exactly what's happened now there was all a spate of you know you'd think that you would walk out your front door and a pit bull was going to savage you the way the media portrayed it and they amplified that narrative and um as a result obviously the law that the government put in legislation the dda act the dangerous dog act which then meant a lot of dogs were seized rightly or wrongly um under the legislation and they would languish in kennels for months years i mean we had dogs that we looked after and they'd been in kennels for years 
And they, I mean, obviously we tried to do the best by them and they were, and the, the situation with some of them was obviously contentious. Others, it was a case of, um, to be honest, they sound like out of control pet dogs that had misstepped. And they, because they fit the criteria, two of them were bull lurchers actually. So they didn't even look like pit bulls, but they were um, uh, very, very muscular greyhounds. Like, I mean, they had been in kennels since when I worked there for years and they still look like they'd gone to the gym two minutes ago. They were so, so muscular. And um, and they they were the most lovely dogs, lovely with people, lovely with dogs, lovely with everything. But they clearly had made a, you know, I'm not saying what they, what they did. They basically chased a horse uh, or rider on a horse and, and um, spooked the horse and then they got seized. So I'm not saying that they didn't need to have some sort of consequence or the owner certainly or some education etc but they literally sat in kennels for, and they they never was they would have been euthanized you know so it was really and when you're working with them on a daily basis you get connected to them you know not stop it you get connected to them you um you you know you bond with them you know that you become their sole carer when you turn up in the morning and you see those dogs respond like your dogs would that can't but help but get in your heart so that was a, a, a quite a challenging uh, experience. And then obviously we had other dogs which were legitimately dangerous, like you could not physically handle them. They were really, really, really dangerous. And yeah, I understand those situations. Those dogs probably would be better off being euthanized because they were a liability. Um, but yeah, we were, it's ironic. That was what, God, nearly 30 years ago? No, more, more than that. So when 1991, wasn't it the legislation come in? Yeah, it was definitely um, early 90s yeah. for sure. Yeah, and we've learned very, really nothing, you know, which is a true reflection of how stupid humans are sometimes, really, you know? Yeah, that whole thing has been really depressing for me. I have a lot of experience with XL bullies because my brother has three. We've had plenty come through training and, and whatnot. And to be honest, my experience of XL bullies, I mean, I, I'm not saying that this is everyone's experience, but my experience has been they've been quite lazy dogs, like really just kind of lazy pet dogs. Sure, they're very big and uh, very powerful, and I can see how they could cause a problem like any big, powerful dog. Mm -hmm. um, but I actually haven't encountered really many XL bullies with big temperament issues. Um, obviously, I'm sure that they exist with, as, as with any breed, people breed ir irresponsible breeding and whatnot. Um, but it does seem like it's it's a sensation caused by the media, especially when you actually look at the the like fatality numbers. Sure, they're up. Like, yeah, they are up from where they were previously, but they're still like, you know, they're still actually pretty low in causes of deaths generally. The frustration is, and this is my opinion, is that being truthful, you know, XL bullies are a derivative of a pit bull. And a pit bull was definitely, the intention was they were bred to, you know, obviously as a bull breed and then subsequently as a fighting breed. Yeah, and that was in the intention of the dog. So you have a derivative of that type of dog. Every now and again, you're going to get a dog, whilst they might try and modify the temperament to make it more placid and have a, a certain look about them, but they want them to be more amenable, biddable, a family dog. But every now and again, because that's how genetics works, you're going to get a dog that's more uh, like a predecessor. That's just the way that genetics works. It's the same with my collies. I'll get a dog that looks like four generations back, a great, great, great grandfather type thing. So, um, but the other bit that's added is that type of dog will attract people as will Malinois, as will Dutch herders, as will, you know, all the those types of extreme breeds will attack people, sorry, attract people of a certain mindset, whether they can, you know, make money, they can have a dog that, um, you know, 
um, creates a certain persona, whatever the case may be, if you were to analyze it. And therein lies the problem. And my frustration constantly is that dogs consistently pay the price for our f ups to be blunt nick you know like and this isn't just if we had this conversation about the cockapoo we would be having the same thing the cons, you know you see um cockapoos with behavioral problems you know um and it's largely down to the intention with which they bought the people go well i'll get a cockapoo because it's cute and fluffy you know even something as simple as oh um do i have to groom it yes you have to groom it. it's half poodle you know and then you have a dog that's in and you and, it's, and then the dog acts inappropriately that's then the dog's fault you know and it's that whole thing and we never stop to go what can we do different about this as human beings? And, you know, of late, I think I've got, if I'm honest, a little bit fatigued by it, really, because it's just been a constant. And I think that's where you have to take social media with a pinch of salt, because it seems to be like humans consistently failing dogs time and time and time and time again. And we don't seem to go, oh, hang on a second. This is something that we're doing and not a reflection of the dogs. You know, like a bit like you, like when I worked in London, I had you know, all those breeds that, you know, people would probably be shuddering and picking up their children running for the hills. They were fantastic dogs. And I would get some that weren't fantastic dogs, but I would get Labradors that were fantastic dogs. And I'd get some that weren't fantastic dogs. I understand the difference of a, let's say, an XL bully um, showing a level of force or aggression versus a uh, a chihuahua. I understand there is a difference. I'm not naive in that sense. And I, you know, being truthful, I went to the vet recently with with Sugar, and um, she, there was two XL bullies. One was before her, one was after her, and they were absolutely humongous. The heads on them were huge. And one of the owners, to be honest, was a bit complacent. He was paying his bill and he was letting his dog come. She was sat on my lap and put his nose right in her, you know, being really intrusive in her in her personal space. And I'm thinking. Jesus, if he grabbed her, I honest to God, I don't know what I would do. And I'm pretty confident with dogs. So you do think, and is that the dog's fault? No, it's not. It was the owner for being complacent and not going, actually, how about you don't do that to that dog? But, you know, as I said, it, it really does frustrate me that yet again, um, uh, you know, dogs are paying the price for our, you know, human beings, um, ego, mindset, ignorance, whatever you want to call it. It just frustrates me really greatly. Yeah, it seems like we need legislation that really focuses on people instead of dogs, you know, and also going back to the the origins of breeding as well, you know, like it really annoyed me. We have this whole crisis and like, um, you know, only three or four months ago, they rejected the whole flop, not crop campaign that was trying to stop the cropping of these dogs. And it's like, you know, those things are going to be linked somewhat in terms of if you can close the loophole of people saying that they've imported crop dogs. You can prosecute some of these like terrible, irresponsible breeders for, you know, and th and those things are somewhat linked. And I know it's not a complete solution, but it's just like the, the irony of like you just rejected this bill and then we're bringing in the ban. It's like, you know, you you actually kind of had an opportunity to make a small difference that you, you actually ignored. Not that, but I think not that's, longer. again, it comes back to the, the powers that be aren't connected with the grassroots, really. And you go, if they had approached people that were... Uh, I'm not. I mean, I, I'm, I'm probably being being unfair because I'm sure they do consult professionals. But you know, I I I would like to hope they consult professionals. But I certainly feel like um, that again, it's a knee jerk response. And you know, the fact that you know they're offering two hundred pounds if you have your dog euthanized, you think I can't believe somebody actually concocted that. I cannot believe somebody had a discussion in a in a in a, a room somewhere and went, 
I know what we can do. We can give people, that would be great. What I'm going to do is give them 200 pounds if they have their, I can't believe somebody would ever utter those words. It just absolutely baffles me that you think that's the solution that we could come up with, is it? That's the best that we could do. But anyway, I mean, as I said, you know, it's very frustrating. You you have, you know, experiences with Excel bullies to the contrary. I've had that experience. I've also had people that have got, yeah, absolutely. You need to train that dog. You've got zero control over it. The dog's, uh, you know, totally um, behaving inappropriately, whatever. the. But I could say that about a chocolate Labrador. I could say that about, you know, um, an overzealous um, golden retriever. I could say you need to get control over your dog. You don't, you know I mean? Um, so I, I, my, as I said, I think all of us that are passionate about dogs feel probably of a similar ilk that this is yet another example of um, human beings failing dogs, to be truthful. Yeah. How did you manage that as a police officer? Like that must have been really tough getting that call, you know, and someone's dog's been reported as a pit bull or whatever. And you Well, know. to be fair, I mean, I wasn't a dog handler, so I wouldn't get necessarily whilst I worked in Hackney and I worked in East London. So I did we did have a f- definitely cases, but you would what how the process would work is that you would um call the um local dog handler and they'd come out and intervene and deal with it. But I mean all the time that I worked in both those locations. I don't think I ever had that experience, but ironically, I did do some work with, um, um, I just got to be careful how I say this, but I did do some work with with involved in that world. And that was very difficult because obviously as a dog lover, um, you know, you're very compromised. And again, you just look at humans failing dogs, you know, like exploiting them, um, you know, uh, yeah, ill-treating them. And it's very, very frustrating, you know, and it's, and it's you know, sad, but then, you know, as I said, it, it, um, I don't want to be a downer on this, but it does feel at the, like where is that disconnect as, as people? But that we we don't realise that um, our role in this uh, in this process really, you know, it's not the dogs necessarily. Yeah, totally. I know we're kind of talking about all the negatives, but did you enjoy being a police officer? Yeah, I did. I really loved it, and um, what I did within the police, I really enjoyed. And it was this. Ironically, there was a lot of parallels to what I do now. So uh, I did lots of different things, but one of my roles was working in youth justice and with young offenders. And there is so many parallels to what I now do uh, all the time, which is work with obviously reactive dogs and adolescent dogs. And the parallels between um, young adolescent humans and young adolescent dogs that will naturally push boundaries act inappropriately, um, you know, deal with anxiety and and fear in uh, in a socially inappropriate manner um, in humans and in dogs was ironic, really. And it really is, you know, it's, it's, you know, like I feel this about everything in life. I think um, like when with the television program, The Dog Had Me, um, it was like a combination of all my life's work all coming together because it obviously in what I do in the show, I'm sort of like, really working with the human to get them to see the dog's perspective and it, it, it was because of my experience in the police that really allowed me to do that um and and be able to hopefully navigate those those awkward conversations with people um which again i don't think i could have got if i hadn't had that life's journey so everything is meant to be nick really certainly that's why i feel about my my life and my career i'm curious just on the topic of adolescence how you feel about the whole neutering situation because i feel like there's a a real kind of like uh tug in both directions at the moment in terms of you have adolescent like male dogs primarily that you know 
are really giving people a hard time, just struggling with their adolescence period. And then at the same time, we're getting more and more science that actually neutering dogs, especially neutering them in puberty, like isn't the best thing to do from a health perspective, you know. Um, however, you kind of, for me, I feel like I can't deny that there are male dogs that will be easier if during adolescence if you knew of them so so it feels like there's a real like pull between those two things at the moment i'm just curious how you're navigating that oh yeah so so um i'll give you my personal opinion with some anecdotal um evidence you want to call it that so i definitely feel castration and spaying should be a very personal thing to the family and caregivers involved with that dog so my personal experience is I've had dogs castrated. I've had dogs remain entire. And I would say um, there's pros and cons to both. And you need to do what's right for the individual dog and the individual circumstances. I've had male dogs that if they had been entire, they would have been an absolute living nightmare. And I think it was the best thing that ever happened to them. And for for example, I had, uh, again, this is an anecdotal um, scenario. So uh, several years back, I had um, a a, a, a four siblings out of a particular line, a litter of German shepherds, working line German shepherds, all come to my puppy class. Three males, one female. And uh, somebody I knew, a friend of mine, bred them. Fantastic breeding, really, really, really worky dogs. They came to me at whatever age they could, the earliest opportunity, and they were like, we want to train them, we want to get them off on the right foot, blah, blah, blah. I said, brilliant. So we did our first little class, and I said to them, right, you lot, you stay back here. I'm going to have a little word with you. And I basically said to them, let me enlighten you as to what you have on the end of the lead. And I sort of said, you know, these are working line German shepherds. And, and they had been, all of them were experienced dog owners, but they um, don't, they definitely did not understand what they were taking on. Anyway, so that was all great. And they were saying, oh, they're fabulous. They're wonderful. We meet up on Sundays and we go to walks. I said, that'll all change in about 10 months time. Lo and behold, what happens 10 months time or a year's time, they ring me up because they did what most people do. They come to public class and they went, brilliant. Thank you, Kamal. We've done that. We've trained our dog. We're going to go off into the blue yonder. And I said, brilliant. I'll probably see you in a couple of months, but you call me. I won't call you type of thing. So lo and behold, they were out walking, adolescent males. Somebody says the other something about the other one's mother and wearing hobnail boots and shagged a pug. And next thing you know, World War III breaks out. They have to choke the one dog, one male off the other male. So they were obviously like devastated. And I was like, well, I... Hate to be the bearer of bad news, but yep, that's pretty standard of what they're likely to do. Adolescent male working line German shepherds. Yep, that's pretty standard. So what happened with those was um, one got sent back to breed and rehomed. The other one I worked with extensively um, on did one-to-ones and the long what they did initially was they had him chemically castrated and they said overnight, overnight they saw an improvement in his behavior and they, long story short, they had him castrated um, and he was massively improved because they were at the point of going, we cannot live our life like this because we feel this dog is a liability and unsafe um, to other dogs. Brilliant with people, but, you know, he was getting really, really strong. Um, and the third one, she had him castrated as well. Now, you could argue in that situation, was that the right thing to do for those dogs? Um, and you possibly physically health wise, possibly not. The dogs may get, you know, early onset um, arthritis or they might have health problems. But with the greatest respect, if they continued as they were, they probably wouldn't even get to that age because they'd either be euthanized or they would be rehomed or they'd be in the system or, you know, best case scenario, they'd be in the system. Worst case scenario, they'd be euthanized. So you have to balance it out and go, well, if I choose to have this dog remain as it is, most pet 
let dog owners want a dog that's going to fit into their lifestyle as opposed to altering their lifestyle to accommodate for the dog. And if they have to accommodate for the dog, which so many do, it's largely almost um, um, a necessary evil, but it's not what they signed up for. What they signed up for is a dog that's going to be inconspicuous, a dog that's going to be social, a dog that is going to innately understand what they want them to do with minimal training. Yes, it's an unrealistic expectation, but that's unfortunately what most people sign up for. So when you say to them, oh, by the way, you're going to have an adolescent male um, whatever that wants to, you know, run across the park and dry hump the, the cockapoo and also get into the fight with the nearest dog around it. To me, considering castration as a just to help them um, achieve that goal of having a dog that's easy, why not consider it? Yeah, because the reality is they're not going to persevere through if the behavior is of the extremes that some adolescent males can be. You know, I know from my entire, my adolescent males, um, my Malinois first was an absolute nightmare in adolescence. He was so unbelievably challenging. Um, my boxer hit the same thing, um, but I navigated that much better because I'd learned from my first dog. And my dogs have got, it's got easier and easier as they've, because of my, one, because of my experience and because of the dynamics in my household. So again, this is purely anecdotal, but what has happened with my dogs now, which I think has helped in adolescence is I have a, a, a group of dogs, I have a pack of dogs, um, and of which there is males and females, entire um, castrated and entire females who've had puppies. So what happens is there's much more of a natural social uh, environment for them, a social setting in that. What will happen is the young adolescents, the young males will become adolescents, the older males will naturally suppress that, and the older females will basically go, get back in your box, Sunny Jim. You know, it's you're still beneath the, 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 the house plant. And what will naturally happen is that adolescents won't be as severe as when my dogs in the past, I had um, castrated males, spayed females, and an entire male. So what would happen is when that entire male was coming of age, his hormones would be off the Richter scale. So his behavior would then be so extreme. If you think of most people with eight, with dogs, they don't have the numbers that I do. They don't have the social group that I would. So they need to get through that in a much more conventional way, and which is probably castrated, castration or neutering. Um, and I think that you have to be open-minded about these things. I understand the pros and cons, but I'm telling you now, you statistically went to most of the rescues in this country and anywhere in the world, I would say the kennels are full with adolescent dogs. And I would probably say more male than female because people have adolescence and they go, I can't cope with this, this stuff. Yeah, I always found that really sad because I've known so many dogs that were like an absolute nightmare during adolescence. But then, you know, you fast forward six, seven months and it's the nicest dog in the world. And, you know, you're getting stopped by people. Oh, my God, what a brilliant dog. Like, you know, and it's like, well, if you would have seen me four or five months ago, you would have thought, oh, my God, what a nightmare. <laughs> you know? And it's really overwhelming for people when you've had that first experience of an adolescent male and your sweet amenable, easygoing, loves everybody um, pet dog is now turned into Cujo. It's like, oh my God. And I think that's when adolescence to me in both two and four legged um, beings is when the relationships are made or broken. Um, and I would say um, that the majority of people will struggle more in adolescence than they will any point in the other point in the dog's life. You know, even, you know, obviously people have hiccups in puppyhood, but I'd say it doesn't compare to adolescence. Yeah, I feel like that as well. I had a conversation with someone 
recently that was really struggling with a working puppy and my and they were considering rehoming it and from my experience i actually said i think you're better off rehoming this dog because if you're struggling now how are you going to cope when this dog is you know 14 15 months old and yeah. causing me the other thing that happened that's definitely more the case now you see a lot of dogs that really should not be in pet domestic homes available on Gumtree, you know, or in the local, you know, um, uh, you know, local paper. And you think, what on earth is that type of dog doing in in the general public? They are not pet dogs, you know. They they are they need a vocation. They need an activity. They need constant training and you know management and yada yada yada. Um, and it, it, again, it's again it comes back to the point we said earlier about humans failing dogs, really. Yeah, it is really sad. How do you navigate the whole, like, probably the biggest issue or one of the biggest issues that people tend to have with adolescent males is when you start getting that intermale aggression. And it, and it becomes a problem because as a society, we have so many neutered dogs and it's such a classic problem. The neutered dogs hate the entire dogs and, you know, then the entire dog gets beaten up a lot and then they start becoming dog reactive and it's just like a bit of a vicious cycle. If you... If you have a if you have like an adolescent entire male and he's starting to get that kind of shit from other dogs, do you tend to stay away from other dogs for a while or how do you tend to manage Absolutely. that? Absolutely. That's exactly what I do. I don't socialize my entire male adolescence with any dog that I don't know or they haven't had a reinforcement history with. So the way in which I rear my dogs now is very, very strategic. So I and um I would say, you know, uh COVID was a COVID controversial as it sounds. COVID was a blessing for dog um, ownership because we essentially all had a little social bubble around us, which other people couldn't invade, which meant if you played your cards right, it was a great opportunity for you to expose your dog without people invading their personal space. And essentially that's what I do with my dogs moving forward in adolescence. So I create a social group with my dogs um, uh, prior to adolescence and I socialize them strategically um, with um, a male dog, a female dog, a black dog, a smooth, small dog, and so forth. I go as broadly as many different types as I can. And I expose them to as many different breed cultures as I can. So I'll expose them to um, a, a brachiophallic dog. I'll expose them to a, um, a small dog and so forth. Okay. So I give them as many, um, expose them to as many cultures as I possibly can. Then when they add into adolescence, I pull back. Okay, and I don't expose them to any new scenarios, if at all, if I can uh, avoid it at all. Um, and what I do is I then um, work on either counter conditioning or um, desensitizing them from a distance to other dogs um, and people and things, et cetera, et cetera. And I essentially revert to putting them in a little um, bubble where I put lots of bubble wrap around them so I can protect their confidence. So the premise being is that if I've done my initial groundwork right, and if hopefully I've got a dog that's got a good temperament genetically, my job is basically don't F it up uh, in adolescence. And where I think that people fall foul is they um, want to take their dog to the local park where they have done since it was a puppy to meet all its buddies. Or they, what a classic thing that happens in adolescence is your dog will get into an altercation or your dog will get beaten up. And what can happen with those instances is there will be a level of trauma that remains with the owner. So the owner um, feels uh, like, oh my God, I've seen my little dog beaten up or, oh my God, my dog's attacked another dog. That then creates an anxiety loop. So the dog that was then previously mildly anxious 
is now incredibly anxious because it's picking up what's being transmitted down the lead. So adolescence is something that needs a real great level of skill to navigate and not have any long lasting issues. So my giant schnauzer is in the peak of adolescence. He's now about two and probably, well, two in a couple of months. Um, so he's two in August gone. And um, he ha- would absolutely have adolescent problems if I didn't manage him and be aware of um, his issues. He's a strong guarding breed. You know, one of the things that he started to do was um, if an e- night when I put my dogs away in uh, in the dog room um, and if he saw any light, any movement, he would just absolutely kick off ridiculously. So I just went, OK, that's fine. I put him in a crate, covered the crate up. I avoided it happening. So now fast track a couple of months down the line, he's absolutely fine again. So in those instances, I choose not to deal with the problem. I just avoid the dog rehearsing it because what he's being triggered to do is become an adolescent guardy breed. Well, that's normal for him to do. And I don't want him to exhibit on, you know, the nightlight or the fox or the whatever it is in the garden. I just avoid him doing it. And I think often what people will do is try and fix the problem. Well, the the best way of um, fixing a problem is not to allow it to happen. I oftentimes talk to people about that, even in puppy class, uh, because, you know, for example, they've got like a 10 week old puppy starting to dig in the garden and it'll be like, just stop them from being able to dig for a month or two. And oftentimes that problem just never gets a chance to develop. And I think sometimes when I give people that advice, I almost think like they think that it's almost like a cop out or like I'm trying to avoid the problem. And it's like, no, no, just from experience, if you just if you just stop, you know, here's another one, Kamal, that actually comes up a lot. People will notice that their puppy has a little bit of nervousness around traffic. So what they do is they go to the busiest road they can and they go sit next to it. And then what what would have been like a little bit of nervousness that probably would have just resolved itself, honestly, instead becomes this massive issue because they've kind of like had a little spot and then they've just picked at it and picked at it until it's become like a, a big problem. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean... I think we've all learned that lesson the hard way. So, um, I mean, I've had a lot of dogs. I've had, I think Beryl's my 25th dog that I've owned. Uh, and in probably about, I think I worked it out about 10 or 11 different breeds. So I've had a lot of experience of owning my own dogs and learning through trial and error that, you know what, less is more. And um, obviously I breed dogs as well. And when you see owners raise their dogs and they, you can see them literally create problems in, in, and you go, well, that didn't, that did, dog didn't have that issue. And I can see to, I can almost pinpoint to the day when they start to create a problem. And my mantra is I don't, I prevention is better than cure. And I avoid my dogs doing anything that I don't want them to do. And more times than not, it won't develop into an issue. And you're absolutely right that people think that you're copping out um, or that my dog lives, my dogs live this really um, barren, you know, um, uh, sort of strict, isolated in um, lifestyle. And you go, nothing could be further from the truth. You know, my dogs have an abundance of freedom, but freedom that they can cope with and they're not going to make bad choices in. So um, and I think that that's the biggest thing that um, to communicate to people with pet dogs is um, if you don't want your dog rehearsing something or doing something, don't allow them to do it in the first place. You know, prevent it happening. And nine times out of 10, if you avoid it happening, it doesn't develop into a problem. The other thing is, obviously, with social media and, you know, the amount of information, if you went online and Googled dog training, Jesus wept, you'd have a million different opinions about how to overcome your apprehensive puppy at 12 weeks old that's got a phobia of traffic. And one of which would be go and sit by tra- traffic and feed it treats. And, and which, again... You know, when you when you as a uh, a person that doesn't know, 
or doesn't have an experience, you're going to trust that source as an expert in that field. And, um, you know, for me, uh, that it frustrates me a little bit because you go, often people will create a problem that it will resolve itself. You know, it's natural for your dog to show a level of fear and apprehension, curiosity, uh, um, concern about things that I, they don't understand. And it's a bit like my daughter, you know, there's moments where she shows fear. I don't implement this behavior modification protocol. I just go, she's having a moment. Let her figure it out. She'll sort herself out. I'm here to support her and to comfort her if that's what she needs. But sometimes she'll just pick herself up and she'll work out on her own. And I think that's something that we almost need to go back to being a little bit more organic in our, in our interactions with dogs and being a bit more natural. Um, and I would say, you know, having been doing this a little while, I would say that's definitely something that, is more of a modern approach that there's a there's a problem to fix. Um, whereas in years gone by, you know, dogs did things that were dog like, and nobody really bothered. They just went, "We'll leave." Like you know, classic thing. You know, like dogs were latchkey dogs, so you let them out in the morning and they turn up in the afternoon. And um, there was a couple of dogs down the road where I used to live, and they used to basically boundary um, uh, guard. So you know, you knew don't go Roxy the Rottweiler, don't go near past Roxy. You just you would walk to a certain point, you'd cross the road because otherwise Roxy would come and you know there was no fence or she would just run to the end of the drive, tell you don't come past that particular bit. So everybody knew. knew it was really amusing to watch people go, oh, there's Roxy, and nobody like complained about it. It was just that's what Roxy did. That's her house. She's guarding her boundaries. She was absolutely, once she was away from that, or her owners were with her, she was absolutely fantastic. But, you know, it was what it was. But I think in today's, again, I think that's a fallout from the DDA. I think it created a subconscious fear that we had about our dogs being perfect and our dogs adhering to social norms and our dogs being politically correct uh, or, or, or behaving in a way that was politically correct. And as a result of that, I think that we've actually, in a lot of ways, created more harm than good. You wrote a blog like a few years ago about uh, like the yin and yang of dog training. And actually Steve Mann, I remember, told me this concept as well. Like he was referring to it as a pendulum. And this like for me, maybe slightly different because you but but this for me is like something that I come back to a lot where this seems to be the way things go in dog training and probably more generally in life as well. Like so, for example, we we're talking about socialization in terms of like at one point like we were like super like socialized dog con you know like you need to get them around a million people and you know and then things over the last few years have maybe like swinged to the other side where it's like don't social i don't so anti-socialization i don't socialize my dog and i think generally like all of these things are like way more nuanced you know and you kind of and 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 probably like the truth is maybe somewhere like closer to the middle like not just with socialization but like uh well, yeah, all of this stuff, like, you know, yeah. all of this. Yeah, which is why, you know, um, absolutely. So, no, again, years gone by, nobody really, when I first got a dog, nobody, what you, what you used to do is socialise them, you took them to the local dog club or you took them to the park and let them off the lead. So that wasn't great. Uh, and then we went and it was, you know, um, Ian Dunbar really um, had the narrative of um, expose your dogs to, I think it was 100 things, uh, you know, whatever it was, I can't remember now, but, and people went to puppy parties, et cetera, and that wasn't great either. So, and now we're going to the other extreme of don't socialize them, et cetera. And you go, again, it's like, let's calm down people. There is a, <laughs> there is a middle ground here. You know, yeah. socialize them enough to, uh, to create the picture and experience that you need, and then don't. It's, a, you know, I, I think it's not, you know, I suppose um, everything to me is a little bit, I think what we've lost is a little bit of um, common sense. And because 
the word balanced has a you know now has an inference we're afraid to say just be a bit more balanced in your approach to your technique not in the methodology but just be a bit more balanced in like you know don't do enough but don't go overboard and you can obviously if you think with that individual dog oh no i need to back off this i don't need to like if i had a you know, I keep on harping on about it. If I had a, you know, really gregarious Labrador, I'm probably not going to bother socialising it as much. I don't need to. It's already got a great temperament. Um, but if I had a dog that was a little bit more reserved, I might expose it, not socialise it. I might expose it to things and do that process. Um, but like, I to be truthful, I don't over-socialise my dogs with lots of different... I don't take them to a million locations. I let them live naturally in, in the world that is mine. I expose them to what I need to expose them to. I assess if they have any concerns. I monitor that and I build confidence around if I think it's appropriate. But um, I don't have any, um, you know, I don't feel there's any need to take my puppy and it takes them to a train station or et cetera. My belief is that if the dog genetically has a sound temperament, my job is don't mess it up. I think genetics are really, really important. That's something I've become like more and more aware of. I feel like the more experience to get, the more, more I realize how important genetics are like definitely what does your kind of day-to-day look like with your dogs you know um do you take them out every day do you go out twice a day do you train every day like what what does it look like that's a great question so um i have as you know as you've you've realized kind of get this podcast out but i have a very busy life obviously i have a daughter and i have a, a business that i run so um i have a lot of things on the go so i do walk my dogs as much as uh, I, I generally i'm going to say every day and i do attempt to i think like it would be very very unusual for me not to walk my dogs even in bad weather i might cut the walk short but i will always take them out because i believe um strongly in the importance of them having exercise and downtime and stimulation and enrichment and all that stuff and to be honest i like it i love walking dogs that was when i didn't have a dog that was one of the biggest things that i wanted to do was to walk a dog and it was like my ideology and my dream of owning a dog was to be uh, walking it down the street and taking it to a field so i am able to rehearse that on a daily basis that's important for me and my mental health as well um I think that's really, really like I, you know, some of the times, you know, like all of us, you know, we have our stresses and stuff. If I take my dogs out for a walk up the downs, it's honest to God, it's like therapy. So it's really important for me. Um, So I do train my dog. I have a lot of dogs that I am training. I have a lot of dogs in general. Um, So I try and train my dogs or I will train dogs probably every day. It won't necessarily be the same dogs because I can rotate them around. Um, and that works for me because I'm quite an intense person. Um, so I, if I had one dog, I would absolutely overtrain it. And I've done that in the past. My first dog, I, my first sports dog, I mean, I trained that dog seven days a week on Christmas. I think I trained him twice type of thing. You know, it was quite, I was a little bit more uh, extreme in my mindset then. Um, but I, I generally try and train each of my dogs three to four times a week. Uh, and they would be like little and often to be truthful. Like I've just done a couple of live sessions with my young dogs and because uh, the weather's been not best. Um, so I did some lives for some of my online groups um, of just different things I'm working on. Um, I love training my dogs. I, that's the thing that um, I have worked to try and create a life where I can have more time to train my dogs because, the, the you know, as cliche as it sounds, the older you get, you realize actually time is your biggest commodity that you you don't have enough of. Um, so I, I'm, I do train my dogs. Uh, I train dogs probably every day. It would be un- the only time I probably wouldn't train my dogs every day or tr- not necessarily the same dogs, as they say, 
would be like, for example, when I was filming, um, I didn't, re- I mean, because it just wasn't practical. Um, but generally speaking, and I have to say for me, um, again, it's really, I love training dogs. I love training dogs. I love the process of it. I love unpacking problems. I love teaching a dog that doesn't know a thing and you can see it acquiring information. I love watching them develop confidence. It is my biggest joy and it's my biggest passion. So again, if you really want to psychoanalyze it, I probably do it as much for my benefit as I do for theirs. Um, So I appreciate not everybody has that um, desire. Um, As an advisory, I'd say, you know, little and often is best. Um, and you know, the more work you put in, that's quality. It's quality training rather than quantity training. To be truthful, you mentioned there, like that you, you know, you have to fight your urge to like overtrain. Mm-hmm. Like, what is that? Do you, do you think that you can train too much? Oh, hundred percent, hundred percent. You can overtrain. You know, you can uh, mentally, physically fatigue a dog, um, and you can often. And I've done this in at various points with dogs. I've um, bought into the, well, just do one more. Yeah, that's a classic mistake that trainers will make. Um, And I will get what I call my horns will come out where I have a problem and I'm going, right, I'm going to fix this problem. And I will will do it from a place of emotion-led training versus thoughtful, considerate, strategic training. And I'm a human being, I'll admit, you know, there's times when I think, oh God, you should have left that. You've now created a bigger problem than what you started out with. Um, But in the same vein, it's that tenacity that makes me a good good at what I do as well. It's a blessing and a curse. I just am now better as I've got older and wiser to keep that that demon in check, really, you know? How important do you think sports are for pet dog trainers, especially? You know, oh, because- like I, I, my personal opinion is that everybody who's a professional trainer should be training their own dogs to a, a standard um, beyond... Uh, a, a certain standard of excellence. So I think that's great practice. You know, it's like that, um, um, and, and they should also be in, in a circle or in a, a, a community where they are being pushed and challenged and, and they're growing because I think that's good practice. It's that thing of steel, sharp and steel. You know, I think that's good practice for everybody who trains dogs and certainly professionally. Um, I feel my personal belief is that a lot of dogs that live lives with humans as domestic pet dogs have really, really, this is going to sound probably a bit offensive, boring existences. And I think they, you know, they live amongst their people. They um, don't do much interesting stuff in the day other than go around the same park um, on the same walk at the same time and have the same food at the same time. And they wait inside the house all day until their owners get back. Um, and then once they've gone for their walk, they sit in the, you know, in the house doing very little. Um, and I just think, wow, what a boring existence is that for a dog? And I, my personal feeling about dog sports is I think it's taken my relationship with my dogs to a whole new level. Like, like I have an understanding of them and a knowing of them that I would say you cannot get from just owning a dog. Because when you are figuring out how that dog thinks, what that dog's sensitivities are, how to make physical contact with that dog in a way that the dog understands and likes and thrives on, you know, where the dog's points of pressure are, what it, what it, how to play with it, how not to play with it, how to look at it. When you understand a dog to that degree, um, it takes your relationship to a whole new level. And I would, I would love for everybody to experience that with their dogs. 
But it doesn't mean like competing is a whole nother entity. You know, you don't have to compete in a sport, but training a dog to that that level of detail and um, training something specifically, for me, that's really good practice in what we do, really. Yeah, it was a massive res- revelation for me over the last year because, you know, to be honest, I feel like I actually kind of burnt out just doing pet dog training. And, you know, I'd come home and I wasn't interested in dog training. You know, I didn't watch webinars, didn't read books. I was yeah. just fed up of it, you know. I, so the last thing I wanted to think about was dog training. And then actually getting back into dog training via sports, it almost kind of like reignited my passion, like reminded yeah. me why I actually love dog training. And I think actually just from knowing a lot of pet dog trainers, I think there's like a real epidemic of that. You know, a lot of people that, you know, they go home and they don't want to train their dog, like, cause they're just so like burnt out actually. And they probably don't even realize they're burnt out. Um, and I, I think that's a massive problem. The other thing is I actually think you, for one pet, you dumb down your skill set. Like when you're dealing with the same sort of stuff, okay, so, you know, um, you know, Mr. Smith can't get his dog to come, his, his uh, cockapoo to come back on a recall. It doesn't stretch you and push you as a trainer to figure out, oh, this is an unusual problem. I've got to step my game up. I've got to think outside the box. I've got to reach out to my peers. I've got to go and scroll the internet to find a, a, an idea to figure this out. You become almost complacent and you lose a level of your skill set like your timing your observation skills your mechanical skills they're things that if you're not constantly working and you're not homing you will absolutely absolutely lose those things if you don't use it you lose it it's like you know i've done martial arts all my life and um but for probably i don't know there was a period where i definitely i stopped for a long while and um, when my daughter was younger, we started going classes again. Jesus wept. It was like, oh, my God, right, let's get this the wheel going again. It took a minute. It'll come back to me. But it took a minute for me to go, oh, wow, okay, that was – I forgot, you know, it was innate and it come back pretty quick. But I, the difference with just keeping that practice up, my skills – like, everything just come back sharper. Are you with me? And I would say the same with dog training. And I think that everybody who's training dogs should be, you know, um, either having their own dog to train with, and that's another – if I'm honest, the next one I have, if you're a professional dog trainer, um, my opinion is you should at least have a dog to train of your own or something that people could look at and go, oh, yes, Nick's training his dog. I can see that he's going through what I'm going through and he understands and empathizes with my journey and he he's homing his craft. And I would say that's another thing that um, um, frustrates me, that people, you know, um, don't have a dog to train. It's like that would be like a driving instructor that doesn't have a car. It's like. Like, how does that work, really? I know, or like, um, my dad used to be a dive instructor, and me then me trying to teach you how to drive. It's like, no, that's what my dad did. He did it really well. I read some, I saw some books he had in the living room a couple of times. Let's see what happens. It just doesn't make any sense to me. So, um, is this the first dog you've ever done sports with then? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I, um, with my first dog, I did have the experience that you were talking about, though, with that kind of like really special connection but because that was that was the first dog where I got interested in dog training and even though I didn't like know what I was doing to the level I do now I was training all the time because I was obsessed with training so I would just train him anything train him tricks just basically anything I saw I would do you know so that was just my first pet labrador yeah so yeah um and then i got into being a a pet dog trainer and you know solving those classic problems um did that for i don't know was doing that for about 10 years or so um but during that time somewhere along the line i kind of lost my passion for it a little bit 
Um, and I didn't, I don't think I really realized that, that is what happened. You know, I, I would just come home. I wouldn't train my dogs. I wouldn't re I stopped reading about it. I stopped like caring about it as much. And then I knew I wanted to do sports. I'd wanted to do sports for a long time. Um, and I wanted to do, I knew I wanted to do one of the protection sports because that kind of appealed to me. Like I'd had a little play about on sleeves and stuff like that before. And it just seemed like so much fun. Um, so I, uh, I went out and got, uh, Onyx, who's my little IGP line, uh, Shepherd. And, um, yeah, just been kind of like that actually like really like going into a different part of dog training when realizing I have so much to learn about IGP so that I don't screw all this up because it's all new to me. Um, like in that process, I just like rediscovered my, my passion you know, that's for it. a really, really interesting point because I think that's another good reason to do other things with your dogs because it humbles you to the process. So, um, you know, I've done obviously multiple dog sports, um, but every time I throw a new dog sport, I feel like I am a beginner again. And I love that process because it makes me realize and empathize with my clients and my students to go, oh, okay. So this is what you feel like when you don't know what you're doing. And it's that, you know, um, conscious incompetence, conscious competence and so forth. You know, it's that acquisition of excellence. And um, I think that's a really important experience that professionals could should go through periodically. Um, and, you know, the trajectory of most, like, and it's interesting you talk about your own journey. So. I would say this is a common theme with most um, dog owners slash professionals. You get your first dog and it's normally a dog that will do things despite your shortcomings as a trainer, because the trajectory is always going to be up. You have no comparison. So that dog will probably, you know, endure your poor timing and it will probably learn despite you. And you want to try, you know, all these different things. The dog goes, yeah, all right, moron, come on, let's give it a go, whatever, right? And then what happens is you, you're patting yourself on the back and you think, God, I'm bloody fantastic. Look at me, I don't know what all these idiots had problems with. I've been, this dog's just done it like that. So then you get your second dog and the second dog is, isn't isn't often, if you're lucky, it will be a similar ilk to the first dog or not far off it. And then they think, well, that's two dogs, two out of two is fantastic. Then you get another dog and that third dog goes, na, 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 na. No, you're not such an amazing dog trainer. It was actually those two dogs that took pity on your poor, <laughs> useless um, soul and allowed you to make the infinite amount of errors. And that's when you become a dog trainer. And I would say that's trajectory a lot of people have consistently. That first dog, you have no comparison. The only way is up. The second dog normally makes you, it's normally that dog that makes you go, oh, Jesus, this dog didn't just do it despite me. And you have what you call a classic case of second dog syndrome. Um, and I would say, what dog sports or partaking or training a dog to a certain level, it allows you to experience what um, one, what most people will go through. And it also really hones your ability to train a dog uh, and really understand the process of training. Like the difference between feeding with your left hand versus your right, the difference between throwing the treat versus feeding the treat in position. Those nuances, which ultimately is the skill set that allows us to communicate information or not should be one that you should constantly be homing and constantly be working on. What sport would you say is the most difficult? Um, well, I would say that, um, I would say if, and I was, I, you could say I've got a bias, but I'd say obedience is probably the most difficult and it's the most difficult because it's the most conflicting in that all the other sports have an entity to them that is self-reinforcing to the dog. So protection has a self-reinforcing entity. Agility has a self-reinforcing um, entity. Tracking, 
working for us, same thing. Obedience has very little that is reinforcing for the dog, unless you have, you know, a particularly driven border collie that likes to run and likes to do retrieves. It is by nature um, suppressing and um, contradicting to trying to create a dog that works with enthusiasm and motivation. And that's why I find such the appeal, because I'm constantly at battle with myself. I want my dogs to be absolutely accurate and correct and technically perfect. And yet I want them to be on the maximum of their drive and desire and want. And those things are like constantly butting heads. And for me, that's the challenge, um, being able to find harmony between the two competing entities. Um, but I also feel that anything done well, any sport done well, requires a level of um excellence and commitment you know you watch somebody do a brilliant igp round like you watch mia stogster train her dogs it's a thing of beauty if you watch dave munnings watch run an agility course thing of beauty if you watch uh you know um one of the julian um gary atkins track their dogs on a working trials a thing of beauty i mean it's absolutely you watch somebody you do mondio ring and you think wow that's like a, an absolute thing of beauty so for me it is more about the skill set and it's the, the 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 detail with which the dog is trained that's the, that to me is what uh makes it more um challenging what sport do you think is the easiest come on oh, <laughs> well, that's a question, um, i would say do you know what not easiest but i'd say a lot of dogs really take to is probably some sort of nose work um like scent work and nose work i would say it, it, one i think it's natural is for the dogs i think most breeds can do it and I would say that it's something that people really understand and get really, really quickly. So I would say nose work and scent work. I wouldn't say it's easy. That's being flippant. But I would say it's something that dogs certainly find easiest out of all the other sports. You mentioned Mia Skogster, and obviously you just recently hosted her in August. Is What were your takeaways from that? Did you have anything that was like a light bulb moment or anything that really kind of stuck with you? It wasn't so much a light bulb moment, but it just really inspired me um, watching somebody train dogs of that caliber. Like, I would say, um, and I've watched people train dogs since I was nine years old. I can see if somebody can train a dog or not. I can watch them pick up a lead and tell you if they can train a dog and their skill set. I can watch how they feed the dog a treat and I can tell you if they have ability to train a dog. And she had it in abundance. She was an absolutely phenomenal, phenomenal dog trainer. Um, and obviously she trains differently to me, which is why I was interested in what she had to say. All the people, I obviously picked the handlers on it. So I knew that they um, would be um, uh, training in a certain mindset and ilk, which made it um, enjoyable to watch, if I'm honest. Um, she her, her presentation skills was excellent, which is something I'm always, from my point of view as a, a seminar presenter, I'm always looking at. Um, her her attention to detail, which is really what I've fast, which really does uh, attract me in any dog training. Um, it, she was so impressive in what she did. Um, so I wouldn't say a specific light bulb. She did really um, what she, she did really um, articulate was for me and really broke down was. In IGP, as I'm sure you'll probably be finding out, they talk a lot about the emotion of the dog and the emotion. They talk about the dog being active. And for a long while, I really suppose um, 
I don't think anybody had explained it in a way that made me go, oh, okay, I absolutely get it. It was almost like this deep, dark art of like this sort of mysterious thing about emotions and active. And, and I think, to be honest, because a lot of people that um, talked about it, being truthful, um, they, there was a language barrier. So I think what would happen is they'd try and articulate it and it wouldn't quite come across excuse me, correctly, um, but she articulated in such a way that made absolute common sense. And it really made me go, oh, yeah, that's exactly how I'd approach training that behavior or that skill. So um, that was really, really enlightening. Um, and if I'm honest, the the way in which she trains her dogs is so thorough, which appeals to me, you know. Um, um, so she was excellent. She's definitely one of the, 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 I mean, I've seen some phenomenal dog trainers and she would absolutely be one of the best trainers I've seen with, with dogs. I mean, um, like she could, she picked up dogs and handled them and she had impeccable timing. Her mechanics were superb. She had, and she could, every dog she could feel, you could think, oh yeah, you've read that dog perfectly up ah, yet. Yeah, you've adjusted your hand there or done that. And you, that comes from years and years and years of training dogs. It really, I love that conversation, you know, when people are talking, because for me, that's, those are the moments that like are really special when I, when, like when I've come across people that are really, really good. And I know some people like, maybe they have like a, a reaction where they're like, oh shit, I'm, you know, they're so much better than me. But for me, it's really exciting. It's like, it's like, oh my God, like it's possible to get that good. Yeah. Other, uh, who, so you said you've seen some phenomenal dog trainers who would be up there for you, like as oh, people um, that blew your mind in terms of their ability. Yeah. So, um, so the first person that really inspired me and probably a lot of people probably won't recognize the name is somebody called Sylvia Bishop. So Sylvia Bishop is a British obedience trainer and she was the forerunner to a lot of modern takes on dog training. And she was so ahead of her, counterparts um it was you know in, in she was really around in a heyday sort of what um late 70s 80s 90s you know and she's made up something like 10 obedience champions or something like one cross multiple times she's a phenomenal phenomenal dog trainer and she was the first first person that really mentored me and i knew her you know we were very very close friends and um she is a phenomenal, phenomenal dog trainer. She trains very differently to how I train now, um, much more balanced and traditional, which, you know, back then everybody did that. But she was the first person that I saw talk about breaking things down into tiny pieces, component parts, training each piece of a puzzle. Um, and she was very big on motivation. Um, and she was absolutely, she could pick up any single dog and make it look like it was a champion. And, and she had dog training hands. So, uh, her timing was impeccable. Her mechanics was impeccable. And she used correction and compulsion. Um, but she did it. And I swear to you, I've seen her train numerous dogs where I don't know how she got away with what she did. But the dog almost went, thank you. And let me, can you please do that again? It was like it was a it defied the laws of learning what she would do. Um, so that was she was a massive mes mentor. And I was I said I, my training has changed and I, I wouldn't probably train like that now. For where I was and for that part of my journey, she was absolutely integral. So she was a massive influence. Then um, the uh, another a very good friend of mine, somebody called Suzanne Jaffa. Suzanne Jaffa is um, a, a, an outstanding trainer. She's an absolute, uh, she would be um, like, she would be an, a, a scientist in terms of her training. She's meticulous in her, um, her training. And she made up a dual champion, uh, Australian Shepherd, um, 
dog called Amber Slade Buccaneer who won Crufts. Um, and he was so meticulously trained. He's probably one of the best trained dogs I've ever seen. But when you know Suzanne and how her attention to detail, she was really, really inspiring. And obviously, you know, Susan Garrett is a phenomenal. I've been to her home and I've been to Canada to, to um, on seminars that she's done. And again, you know, it's like one of those things I obviously I knew Susan, you know, um, I knew of Susan at that point. And then at that point, this was years and years ago. I'd seen her online and anybody can, you know, if you edit a video, you can make anybody look like a good dog trainer. So again, I was also thinking, you know, I've come this all this way. I'm going to see, and I would be able to see if she was what she said she was. And she was absolutely what she, what she, what you absolutely see is Susan Garrett is that good. You know, she really was. And I, one little thing I can remember was, well, two things actually. One was we were out having uh, the seminar finished and she trained her dogs she trained the seminar, she trained her dogs, and she was just sitting there and we were having uh, a drink in the evening. And um, she put her dog up on the bench on, on a table and she was talking away and we were talking about whatever. So we weren't talking dog training. And the dog gets up to move and, and she hadn't released it. And without even batting an eyelid, she just got up and just put her hand in the collar and put it back on the bench. And she didn't even miss a beat. She didn't even, it was such a subconscious response of that dog's changed criteria. And I'm going to, and she wasn't, it wasn't punitive. It was just like, oh, I think he's forgot himself. And that was one instance. And another instance was where she had, her, it was a young dog at the time. It was a puppy, um, a dog called Momentum. And um, again, she'd finished the seminar. She was um, um, finished the three, I think it was three days of teaching. So this was the last day. She was absolutely knackered, you could tell. So she was um, letting her puppy run around. The, there was several of its siblings in on the seminar. So she let the puppy around at the end of the day. And she called it and the puppy went, no, no, no. And you could tell the lot, what she really wanted to do was just to go. The easiest thing would have been, you know, cajole it back, give it a tidbit, blah, 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 blah. And just, but she went, no, I've called her. And she, it was the consistency with which she went, no, I'm going to, like, she went, stop, walked, went up, you know, stop the, um, and she did it in a way. She, what she did, she walked up the dog, just put her hand in the collar, held it for three or four seconds, let go of it, called it again, told it it's brilliant, let it go off, called it and played with it. And she did it so brilliantly. And she basically said, no, no, sweetheart, I've called you. And every time I call you, I expect a response. But it was done. And the dog was so clear um, in what she did with it. And she, the big thing was how consistent she was. you know. And I think that really does mark, um, uh, uh, is a mark of a great dog trainer. It's the consistency. And it's almost like this is what all Sylvia, Suzanne, um, Mia, um, um, Susan, they all have this subconscious ability to be consistent without even having to consciously think about it. Do you know what I mean? It's like Sylvia was always hot on. If she called a dog, she'd only, she'd call them once. Um, and she was, then she'd do something about it, you know, run away or whatever the appropriate response was, but she would cause the dog to respond to her. Um, you know, and, and it was that mindset um they're phenomenal i mean there's lots of people i think are incredible dog trainers and some that don't that train very different to me um but i can respect their craft and i can respect their art um but yeah i've been really really like some incredible dog trainers yeah that's really cool that's really cool obviously well obviously you're um, maybe one of the things you're best well known for is the hill work and stuff like that what are the most common mistakes that people tend to make with your work that you see over and over again when people come to you 
Um, yeah, I would say the biggest thing about heel work specifically is rushing the process of teaching it. And people want to get on to the sexy stuff. Like, And this is applicable to it, irrespective of the sport that you train, the skill that you train. People want to move on to the fancy stuff, you know, so they want to get on as quick as they can to the end product. Whereas actually those of us that have been doing it for a while, you realize where your dogs are trained is the tiny little details at the beginning. And they're repeated and repeated and repeated until they're so fluent with the dog uh, and so slick and so polished. It then makes everything else easier. And I would say that's the, the biggest issue that people have rushing their basics and that's often because they want to get on and compete or they want to um you know get titles they want to get prizes or they want to get rosettes that desire of sacrificing what you want for what you want right now is the biggest thing that i battle with with when i coach people and if i could say to people just the more time you spend on your basics the easier it will get in the long run mm. Yeah, that's really interesting. When you when you go through that process of doing heel work with a young dog, how long, it's difficult because I guess there are multiple stages, but how long do you tend to spend on each stage? It's dog dependent. So like obviously I've had lots of different breeds of dogs. So you have to take into consideration the physicality of the dog and the maturity of the dog. So I've had dogs that could do, you know, competition level heel work at six months. And I've had dogs that took years to achieve that picture. So it depends on the dog. It depends on the maturity. It depends on the physical capability. Um, and it depends on, obviously, the desire and drive of the dog. So I won't even start heel work training until I feel like they've got the dog really committed and into me. Um, so some dogs pick it up really, really quickly. Um, I would say that's not the norm. And I would say heel work, as a, the way in which I teach it, will take at least at least a year to really, really train well. Um, but I had dogs that have done it, done it, that have gone through the process quicker, but I would say to be truthful, they were exceptional dogs, really. Mm, really interesting. And then in a similar vein, what are the most common mistakes you see dog trainers make with reactivity? Because I think, uh, most, or a lot of people are familiar with how to work with reactivity and maybe dog trainers probably tend to listen to this podcast a lot more than owners. So what, what? What are the most common mistakes you see dog trainers make with reactivity? Oh, there is, I would say there's two ends of the spectrum. One is the, the mindset to use aversives and punishment to deal with reactivity. I think that's a massive, massive misstep. And the other extreme is take making the process so long-winded and so, um, so um, drawn out that it's unrealistic for most people to achieve. And I think it's the, it's again, it's the balance, isn't it, between the two ends of the spectrum. So people that use aversives to try to deal with reactivity, to me, that's like, you know, trying to put out a fire with gasoline. You're, you're just asking for trouble. And then the other extreme is the meticulously laid out training plan or behavior modification protocol that that's unrealistic for most people, average dog owners in that lead normal lives to implement a strategic um, uh, protocol system uh, behavior modification protocol where they've got to be I don't know two miles away from the dog and then do that for it's like who can do that like it is you've got they've got to go over the local park they've then got to pick the kids up they've got to make dinner they've got to get back then they've got the job it's like who's got time to do that you know so I think it's those two ends of the spectrum yeah the two ends of the spectrum that make reactivity almost this elusive um uh problem that they have to then endure for uh, years and years and years and years and for me um 
again, it's the happy medium. Of, let's move the dog on. Yeah, the dog's going to have an outburst. That's normal. Let's just find the threshold. Okay, let's peel it back a couple of steps, not go back to ground zero. Let's just pull back a little bit. Right, let's do some reinforcement. And the other thing is, I would say the vast majority of dogs that um, have reactivity challenges, if you even forget the dog having reactivity issues, if you solely worked on focus and engagement, the dog's having a brilliant recall, the dog having a fantastic sit and the dog having a fantastic down, I would all but put my mortgage on you being able to navigate 99% of situations. So, you know, and that's why I'd say a lot of people that have, that come to me that go, oh, my dog's reactive. When you strip it back, the dog isn't focused, engaged. The dog doesn't understand sit. It doesn't understand down, doesn't have a recall. So you've now got an untrained, unfocused, unengaged dog out in the world and you're wanting it to not react to things. It's like, well, that's really making your job triple hard, if not quadruple, uh, more difficult. Yeah, that was a learning curve for me as well. I think when I started off doing reactivity, because, you know, you read all the books and it's like, hey, we have to work the dog under threshold, which is obviously true. But I feel like it gets so drummed into you in the beginning that you're so terrified of the dog going over threshold that actually it really stunts your progress um, versus accepting that there are going to be times when you don't want it to happen. But there are going to be times when the dog goes over threshold and it's not the end of the world, you know, and and um, actually being a little bit braver about pushing forwards can shorten the process so much that it's, it's really worth doing. But you know, it's really what I, I suppose I've managed to, I don't know how I've managed to be such that I can bounce in lots of different camps and everybody welcomes me with open arms. So I can speak to balance trainers and they go that I mean no harm. I can speak to force-free community and they understand that I obviously I can be accepted. I can speak to behaviorists or in that sort of um, culture and they'll embrace what I have to say. I can talk in dog training terms and same for, and same with dog sports. And I, and I wish that we would all put our spears down and our placards and rather than trying to argue who's right and who's wrong, going, actually, we're all trying to aim for the sort of same sort of stuff, really. I choose not to use aversive tools. That's my own personal preference and my own uh, um, personal beliefs. I know why I choose not to, having done it in the past and realised that, in my opinion, they weren't effective. Um, it was a, it's been a choice based on experience and hopefully enlightenment and understanding. But in terms of um, certainly if you're talking about reactivity, a lot of the advice that I hear people given is absolutely what you would read from a textbook. It would be whether you said it, I said it, Bob said it, Dave said it, John, it wouldn't matter. It's the same regurgitated stuff. And I would say in a lot of times you go, well, hang on a second. Is that applicable to this dog? Is that realistic for this owner? Is that realistic for this environment? So you're asking them to adhere to the ticky box behavior modification part that we could all, I could go online and I could get, a, you know, that I could print that off. You're not actually dealing with the individual. And that's why I'd say we're often um, people uh, fall short. And that's why they then go, well, reinforcement basic dog training doesn't work. It's like, no, no, it's not that. It's probably we need to tweak the plan, really. So and as I said, I think sometimes we're so busy trying to um, say who's right. We go, do you know what? Calm down. Let's just, you know, obviously there's been a lot of that in our industry of late, really, isn't there? You know, Um yeah, and a bit of in-house fighting. And I just wish we would all just, you know, um, get on the same, at least the same understand that we're all probably aiming for a similar thing. 
Yeah, I don't know if you agree with me on this, Kamal, but I really think the first step for that is actually just dropping the labels and dropping the tribalism because I think that inherently just brings this us against them, me against you kind of mindset versus actually if we just all say, hey, we love training dogs, you know, we're dog trainers, behaviorists, whatever, um, you know, you, you start from a place of mutual respect. Absolutely. And, you know, the thing I would say is I'm not... I, as I said, I think I've managed to do that relatively well in that I probably could pick up the phone and reach out to the majority of people in the industry. And I would feel, I'd like to think they would probably have a conversation with me. But it's because I don't, it doesn't matter to me what they do per se. Obviously, I'm 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 very vocal about the use of certain tools on dogs. And I think that, and my feeling is not about, is it good or bad? I would say that they require so much skill and so much great timing and so much that you go, most people don't have those. Um, even people with good timing, like I do, I mistime my clicks and my mistime things now and again, because I'm a human being. So why would I then attach a, you know, something that's going to inflict pain on my dog? That's my personal choice. Um, but if somebody else chooses to, to use that, you know, that I don't pl- operate from a place of that person should be tarred and, you know, um, uh, you know, chucked off a bridge. It's like, well, how about I have a conversation with them and understand their viewpoint and explain mine and see if they could maybe consider, um, um, you know, what I do as a, a possible option. You know, I teach in America um, quite a bit and, um, you know, culturally they have a very different mindset to dog training. You know, it's very standard to have pinch collars on dogs. So in a, there's a seminar I do for, um, you know, friends of mine that are balanced trainers and they use pinch collars. And I obviously did when I do a seminar, I ask that nobody um, have a pinch collar on their dog and everybody without fail um, will honor that when I, they are on the floor working with me. What they do in the car park is nothing to do with me because I'm not policing them. I'm not teaching them about that. I'm working on what I see in front of me. Everybody will respect the fact that that was my decision and I don't get any pushback on it. Um, and yet, and when I was over there, the first time I got asked to go over there, we had really great what I call dinner conversations where we break bread conversations where I didn't know them. They didn't really know me. And we had really great conversations about how I train versus how they train and their belief system. And often, you know what, Nick, we we can, you think what the other person's thinking, you think what the other person's belief system, and actually we have more in common than um, what we do different. And I and I suppose I live in this um, somewhat hope that um, d- d- people will have conversations which will move things forward. I know that's happening in our industry a bit more, um, but who knows? Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I don't, I'm not sure about the whole, like trying to change people's mind, like attitude in, in terms of the approach to this, like, I kind of feel like, you know, let's let the conversations happen. And if you talk about actually, if you actually just like forget about all of the politics and just talk about the training of the dog, <laughs> you know, and you, and you do it as well, you actually, you know, go and do uh, examples and, you know, go and do workshops and stuff like that. I feel like the truth will win out. You know, like I, I don't think that, that we need to have like big debates on Facebook or, uh, or like make it such a, a big um, fight. Like I feel like actually if you just get to the dog training, then, you know, we'll, 
what works will work and and the we can talk about the pros and cons and we'll see them and you know as opposed to just just fighting about stuff yeah and, and to be honest i don't have the time or the energy like in my day is too busy like you know i have a lot of dogs i have a child i have work i've got businesses to run and i've got things to do i don't have time to go and embroil myself in discussions and debates it's like and, and i i again i think Social media is a blessing and a curse. And I think that sometimes that's good marketing to be controversial. Uh, it's not what I do. It's not my thing. Um, and I respect that everybody's entitled to their opinion. As long as they don't, you know, um, I don't, they don't force me to, to you know, uh, have to adhere to their belief system and vice versa. I'm all good. You know, you do you basically and I'll do me. Yeah, totally. Well, this was a really cool conversation. Where can people find out more about what you, what you are doing then, Kamal? So yeah, obviously I'm uh, I'm on social media. I'm on um, Kamal Fernandez Dog Training is my Facebook page and Instagram. Obviously have my website where uh, I offer courses on sports and reactivity spe- specifically. Um, you know, um, hopefully yeah, in, in, and I you know obviously to speak um, you know in the UK and abroad. So you know most people can probably track me down somewhere. Um, but yeah, um, no, thank you. It was a great conversation, really. Yeah, it's good to connect with you after all these years. Not <laughs> leave it another seven, really. Yeah. I'll put one in diary for another seven years, Nick. Okay, okay. Thanks, Kamal. Not my pleasure. Hey, I hope you enjoyed that podcast. If you did, don't forget to leave a review. It really helps us climb the podcast rankings or just share it with a friend. And also, don't forget to check out our sponsor, N2N Canine Mills. They sell treadmills for dogs, essentially. They have carpet mills and slap mills. Really fantastic way of improving your dog's fitness. And there is a code for listeners of this podcast, which is NB10. You can find them on Instagram as N2N Canine Mills or they have their own website, which is n2nk9mills.com. That's the letter N, the number two, the letter N again, and then K9, like the word, and then Mills. Fantastic. See you in the next episode.